Chapter Fourteen of the Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Fourteen. A young hobo named Carl Erickson crawled from the rods of an N&W freight car in Roanoke, Virginia, on a May day with spring at full tide and the Judas trees a singing pink on the slopes of the Blue Ridge. Hmm grunted the young hobo. I like these mountains. Guess I'll stay here a while. Virginia. Plantations and Civil War history and Richmond and everything in me here. A frowsy old hobo poked a somnolent head up from a pile of lumber near the tracks and yawned welcome to the recruit. Hello, Slim. How's tricks? Pretty good. What's the best section to batter for a poke out, Billy? To ride over that way and straight out. Much obliged, said Slim. Erstwhile Erickson. Say, do you know of any jobs in this? Any what's? Jobs. Jobs? You looking for? Say, you beat it. Go on. Chase yourself. Go on now. Don't stand there. You ain't no decent bow. You're none of those unfortunate workmen that's spoiling the profish. The veteran stared at Carl reprovingly yet with a little sadness, too, at the thought of how bitterly he had been deceived in this young comrade, and his uncombed head slowly vanished amid the lumber. Carl grinned and started uptown. He walked into four restaurants. At noon, in white jacket, he was bustling about his waiter in the dining-room of the Waskahomany Hotel, which had white service as a feature. Within two days he was boon companion of a guest of the Waskahomany, Parker High, an actor famous from Cape Charles to Shocksville, now playing heavies at Roanoke in the great Riley Tent Show, presenting a popular repertory of famous melodramas under canvas, rain or shine, admittance twenty-five cents, section reserved for colored people, the best show under canvas, this week only. When Parker High returned from the theater, Carl sat with him in a room which had calico-like wallpaper, a sunken bed with a comforter, out of which oozed a bit of its soiled cotton entrails, a cracked water pitcher on a staggering washstand, and a beautiful new cuspidor of white china, hand-painted with pink moss roses, tied with narrow blue ribbon. Carl listened credulously to Hyde's confidences as to how jealous was Riley, the actor-manager of Hyde's art. Now Hyde had knocked them all down in a stock company at Newport News, and that E. H. Southern had said to him, when they met in Richmond as guests of the Seven Pines Club, "'Say, rasp high, you're a smart young fellow, good-looking, educated. Why don't you try to get an engagement? I'll knock you down to Riley. The second juvenile's going to leave on Saturday, and there ain't hardly time to get anybody from Norfolk.' "'Golly, that'd be great!' cried Carl, who, like every human being since Eden, with the possible exceptions of Calvin and Richard Mansfield, had a secret belief that he could be a powerful actor. "'Well, I'll see what I can do for you,' said High at parting, alternately snapping his suspenders and scratching his head. Though he was in his stocking feet and coatless, though the back of his neck was a scraggle of hair, Parker High was preferable to the three Swiss waiters, snoring in the hot room under the eaves, with its door half open, opposite the half-open door of the room where negro chambermaids tumbled and snorted in uncouth slumber. 
Carl's nose wrinkled with bitter fastidiousness as he pulled off his clothes, sticky with heat, and glared at the swathed forms of the waiters. He was the aristocrat among proletarians, going back to his own people of the great Riley tent show. As second juvenile of the tent show, Carl received only twelve dollars a week, but Mr. Riley made him promises rich as the Orient barrel, and permitted him to follow the example of two of the bandsmen and pitch a cot on the trampled hay flooring of the dressing-room tent, behind the stage. There, also, Carl prepared breakfast on an alcohol stove. The canvas creaked all night, negroes and small boys stuck inquisitive heads under the edge of the canvas, but it was worth it to travel on again, to have his mornings free except for an hour's rehearsal, to climb to upland meadows of Virginia and Kentucky, among the pines and laurel and rhododendron, tramping up past the log cabins plastered with mud, where pickaninnies stared shyly, past glens shining with dogwood and friendly streams. Once he sat for an hour on Easter Knob, gazing through a distant pass whose misty blue he pretended was the ocean. Once he heard there were moonshiners back in the hills. He talked to bearded drunkards and their sun-bonneted wives, and when he found a Confederate veteran, he listened to the tale of the defense of Richmond, delighted to find that the boys in gray were not merely names in the history books. Of all these discoveries he wrote to his mother, wishing that her weary snow-bleached life might know the southern sun, and the first five dollars he saved he sent to her. But as soon as Carl became an actor, Parker Hay grew jealous of him and was grantingly contemptuous when he showed him how to make up, among the cheap actors jammed in the men's dressing-room before a pine-board set on two sawhorses under the light of a flaring kerosene torch. Carl came to hate high, and his splotched face, his pale large eyes and yellow teeth, and the bang on his forehead his black string tie that was invariably a screw, his slovenly blue suit, his foppishly shaped tan button-down shoes with bulldog toes, high invariably jeered. Don't make up so heavy. Well, put a little rouge on your lips. What do you think you are, a blooming red-lipped Venus? Try to learn to walk across the stage like you had one leg that wasn't wood, anyway. It's customary to go to sleep when you're playing a listening role, but don't snore. Oh, you're a swell actor. Think of me swallowing your story about having been to college. Don't make up your eyebrows so heavy, you fool. Why, you ever wanted to be an actor. The great Riley agreed with all that Hay said, and marveled with Hay that he had ever tried an amateur. Carl found the dressing-room a hay-dusty hell but he enjoyed acting in the Willow's Penny, Alabama Nell, Moonshiner's Daughter, and the Crook's Revenge, far more than he had enjoyed picking phrases out of Shakespeare at a vaguely remembered Plato. Since in Jeroleman and Plato he had been brought up on melodrama, he believed as much as he did the audience in the plays. It was a real mountain cabin from which he fired wonderfully loud guns in the Moonshiner's Daughter. And when the old mountaineer cried, "'Hey, ain't going to steal my gal,' Carl was damp at the eyes and swore with real fervor the oath to protect the girl, sure that in the ravine behind the backdrop his bearded foemen were lurking. 
The cook's revenge was his favorite, for he was cast as a young millionaire and wore evening clothes, second-hand. He held off a mob of shrieking gangsters crouched behind an overturned table in a gambling den. He coolly stroked the lovely hair of the Indian Miss Evelyn Le Iwise, with one hand leveled a revolver with the other and made fearless jests the while to the infinite excitement of the audience, especially of the Haya 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 Negroes, whose faces under the flicker of lowered calcium carbide lights made a segregated strip of yellow-black polka-dotted with white eyeballs. When the people were before him, respectful to art under canvas, Carl could love them, but even the tiniest raggedy breeched darky was bold in his curiosity about the strolling players when they appeared outside, and Carl was self-conscious about the giggles and stares that surrounded him when he stopped on the street or went into the drugstore for the comfortable solace of a banana split. He was in a rage whenever a well-dressed girl peeped at him amusedly from a one-lunged runabout. The staring so flustered him that even the pride of coming from Chicago and knowing about motors did not prevent his feeling feeble at the knees as he tried to stalk by the grinning motored aristocracy. He would return to the show-tent to hate the few tawdy drops and flats, the patch of green spattered with dirty white which variously simulated a daisy-field, a mountainside, and that part of Central Park, directly opposite the Fifth Avenue residence of the millionaire counterfeiter, who, you will remember, always comes out into the street to plot with his confederates. Carl hated with peculiar heartiness the anemic, palely varnished, folding garden bench, which figured now as a seat in the moonshiner's den, and now with a cotton leopard skin draped over it as a fauteuil in the luxurious drawing-room of Mrs. Van Antwerp. The garden bench was, however, associated with his learning to make stage love to Miss Evelyn La Eloise. It was difficult to appear unconscious of fifty small boys all smacking their lips in unison while they kissed the air one centimeter in front of Miss La Eloise's lips. But he learned the art. Indeed, he began to lessen the centimeter for safety. Miss Evelyn Louise, christened Lena Ludwig, and her presumptive to one of the best delicatessens in Newport News, reveled in love-making on and off. Carl was attracted by her constantly, uncomfortably. She smiled at him in the wings, smoothed her fluffy blonde hair at him, and told him in confidence that she was a high school graduate, that she was used to much, oh, much better companies, and was playing under canvas for a lark. She bubbled, Huck, Louis, say, ain't it hot? Honest, Mr. Erickson, I don't see how you stand it like you do. Say, honest, that was swell business you pulled in the third act last night. Say, I know what let's do. Let's get up a swell act and get on the peanut circuit. We'll hit Broadway with a noise like seventeen marine bands. Say, honest, Mr. Erickson, you do awful well for... I bet you ain't no amateur. I bet you been on before. He devoured it. One night, finding that Miss Evelyn made no comment on his holding her hand, he lured her out of the tent, during a long wait, trembled, and kissed her. Her fingers gripped his shoulders agitatedly, plucked at his sleeve. As she kissed him back, she murmured, Oh, you had not to do that. 
but afterward she would kiss him every time they were alone. And she told him, with confidential giggles, of Parker Hyde's awkward attempts to win her. Hyde's most secret notes she read till Carl seriously informed her that she was violating a trust. Miss Evelyn immediately saw the light and promised she would never, never, never do anything like that again. And honest, she hadn't realized she was doing anything dishonorable, but hey, was such an old pest, which was an excuse for her weeping on his shoulder and his kissing the tears away. All day he looked forward to their meetings, yet constantly the law of the adventure, which means the instinct of practical decency, warned him that this was no more for him, that he must not make love where he did not love, that his good-hearted vulgarian was too kindly to tamper with and too absurd to love. Only, and again his breath would draw in with swift exultation as he recalled how elastic were her shoulders to stroke. It was summer now, and they were back in Virginia, touring the eastern shore. Carl, the prairie-born, had been within five miles of the open Atlantic, though he had not seen it, along the endless flat, potato-fields broken by pine-groves under whose sultry shadow negro cabins sweltered. The heat clung persistently. The show-tent was always filled with a stale scent of people. At the town of Nankawak, the hotel was not all it might have been. Evelyn Laewese announced that she was good and sick of eating a vaudeville dinner with the grub-axe stuck around your plate in a lot of bird-bath tubs, little masses of turnips and dab of spinach and a fried cockroach. And when it comes to sleeping another night in a bed like a gridiron, no thank you. And believe me, if I see that old rube hotel keeper comb his whiskers at the hall hat rack again, he keeps a baby comb in his vest pocket with a lead pencil and a cigar some drummer gave him. If I have to watch him comb that alfalfa again, I'll bite his ears off and get pinched by the SPCA. With Miss Lubley, the old lady and complacent, unofficial chaperone of the show. Eve was going to imitate Carl and the two bandsmen, and sleep in the dressing-room tent, over half of which was devoted to women of the company. Every day Carl warned himself that he must go no further, but every night, as Eve and he parted to sleep, with only canvas partition between them, he cursed the presence of the show chaperone and the two bandsmen, always distressingly awake and talking till after midnight. A hot June night. The whole company had been invited to a dance at the U.C.V. Hall. The two bandsmen were going. The chaperone, lively old lady with experience on the burlesque circuit, was gaily going. Carl and Eve were not. It had taken but one glance between them to decide that. They sat outside the silent tent on a wardrobe trunk. What manner of night it was, whether starlit or sullen, Carl did not know. He was aware only that it was oppressive, and that Eve was in his arms in the darkness. He kissed her moist, hot neck. He babbled incoherently of the show people, but every word he said meant that he was palpitating because her soft body was against his. He knew, and he was sure that he knew that when they discussed high string tie and pretended to laugh, they were agitatedly voicing their intoxication. His voice unsteady, Carl said, Jiminy, it's so hot, Eve. 
going to take off this darn shirt and collar and put on a soft shirt. To say, why don't you put on a kimono or something? Be so much cooler. Oh, I don't know as I ought to. She was frightened. Oz at bucolic madness. Do you think it would be all right? Why not? Guess anybody's got a right to get cool night like this. Besides, they won't be back till four a.m., and you got to get cool. Come on. And he knew, and he was sure that she knew, that all he said was pretense. But she rose and said nebulously, as she stood before him, ruffling his hair, Well, I would like to get cool, if you think it's all right. I'll put on something cooler anyway. She went. Carl could hear a rustling in the women's end of the dressing-room tent. Fevered, he listened to it. Fevered, he changed to an outing shirt, opened at the throat. He ran out, not to miss a moment with her. She had not yet come. He was too overwrought to heed a small voice in him, a voice born of small fields, colored with sunset and trained in the quietudes of Henry Fraser's house, which insisted, Go slow. Stop. A louder voice throbbed like a pulsing in the artery of his neck. She's coming. Through the darkness her light garment swished against the long grass. He sprang up. Then he was holding her, bending her head back, exalted to find that his gripping hand was barred from the smoothness of her side only by thin silk that glided and warmed under his fingers. She sat on his knees and snuggled her loosened hair tingly against his bare chest. He felt that she was waiting for him to go on. Suddenly he could not, would not go on. Dearest, we mustn't, he mourned. Oh, Carl, she sobbed, and stopped his word with clinging lips. He found himself waiting till she should finish the kiss that he might put an end to this. Perhaps he was checked by provincial prejudices about chivalry, but perhaps he had learned a little self-control. In any case, he had stopped for a second to think, and the wine of love was gone flat. He wished she would release him. Also, her hair was tickling his ear. He waited patiently till she should finish the kiss. Her lips drew violently from his, and she accused, You don't want to kiss me. Look here, I want to kiss you all right, Lord. For a second his arms tightened. Then he went on cold. But we'll both be good and sorry if we go too far. It isn't just a cowardly caution. It's, oh, you know. Oh, yes, 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 we mustn't go too far, Carl. But can't we just sit like this? Oh, sweetheart, I am so tired. I want somebody to care for me a little. That isn't wicked, is it? I want you to take me in your arms and hold me close, close and comfort me. I want so much to be comforted. We needn't go any further, need we? Oh, now, good Lord, Eve, look here. Don't you know we can't go on and not go further? I'm having a hard enough time. He sprang up, shakily lighting a cigarette. He stroked her hair and begged. Please go, Eve. I guess I haven't got very good control over myself. Please, you make me... Oh, yes, yes, sure, blame it on me, sure. I made you let me put on a kimono. I'm leading your pure, white, shriveled peanut of a soul into temptation. Don't you ever dare speak to me again. Oh, you, you, you. She flounced away. Carl caught her in two steps. See here, child, he said gravely. If you go off like this, we'll both be miserable. 
You remember how happy we were driving out to the old plantation at Passant? Oh, God, won't you men never say anything original? Remember it. Of course I remember it. What do you suppose I wore that little branch of laurel you picked for me? Wore it here, here at my breast, and I thought you care if I hid it there, where there wasn't any grease paint. And you don't. You don't care. And we picnicked, and I sang all the time. I put up those sandwiches and hid the grapefruit in the basket to surprise you. Oh, darling Eve, I don't know how to say how sorry I am, so terribly sorry. I've started things going. It is my fault. But can't you see I've got to stop it before it's too late? Just for that reason. Let's be chums again. She shook her head. Her hand crept to his, slid over it, drew it up to her breast. She was swaying nearer to him. He pulled his hand free and fled to his tent. Perhaps his fiercest jibe at himself was that he had to play the role of Virgin Galahad, rejecting love, which is praised in books and ridiculed in clubs. He mocked at his sincere desire to be fair to Eve, and between mockeries he strained to hear her moving beyond the canvas partition. He was glad when the bandsman came erupting home from the dance. Next day she went out of her way to be chilly to him. He did not woo her friendship. He had resigned from the great Riley show, and he was going, going, going anywhere as long as he kept going. End of chapter 14